Welcome to Healing Black Futures, a podcast envisioning Black liberation and healing through economic justice. This podcast is brought to you by reparationsforslavery.com. I am your host, Asia Dorsey. Episode one, reparations and food justice. When I think about food justice, it was really from the perspective of like, this should be about our empowerment as people, our empowerment as communities. Like how can we leverage food systems to create better accessibility to jobs? How can we leverage food systems to absolutely create better access to food? How can we leverage food systems to create spaces where elders and and young people can come together and have that type of intergenerational exchange that I had taken for granted for much of the early part of my life. In that period, food justice really was that. It was a way to create a more just environment for the folks who were living in communities that had been left behind. Food justice is an important element of the movement for reparations, given the historical connections most of our farmlands have to slavery, sharecropping, and other injustices. It necessitates both access to land and economic redress, including support for Black farmers, the development of urban agriculture projects that demystify food production, and the restoration of Black foodways. Our guest today is Damian Thompson, Ph.D., Damien is the lead professor of sustainable food systems and the Masters of Environment graduate program at the University of Colorado Boulder. Dr. Thompson also holds a certificate in advanced permaculture design. He is a farmer and a designer of biodiverse food producing landscapes. In 2018, Dr. Thompson co-founded Frontline Farming, a Denver-based BIPOC and women-led nonprofit farming organization whose mission is to create greater equity across the food system and to support and create greater leadership and access for women and people of color. He centers racial equity as a key organizing principle of his work. Welcome, Dr. Thompson, to Healing Black Futures. It's a pleasure to be here with you, as always. Yes. Okay, so I first met Damien when I was a participant researcher with the Food Justice and Youth Organization run by Leah Bry called Greenleaf Denver. And since then, Damien and I have collaborated on a lot of really dope projects, Afrofuture projects, and really building community around community food justice. So I'm just so happy to have you here in this space once again and to to have your wisdom accessible to so many people. Damien, can you ground us in the conversation about food justice and why we need it? Probably one of the best ways to kind of come into the conversation is to maybe give a little background about how I even came into the food justice conversation. Before I moved to Denver, I was in graduate school in Washington, D.C., and actually wrote my dissertation on gentrification of Columbia Heights, which is now a way gentrified neighborhood in the northwest part of the city. And toward the end of my experience there, I really started thinking a lot about green space. Green space and its impact psychologically on especially Black communities, communities of color. You know, I had been living in in a community where 
you know, there were African-Americans, there were folks from sub-Saharan Africa, there were Latinx folks from mostly Central America, El Salvador, Guatemala, also um, in the, you know, the Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico. So just a wide range and diversity of people. And I always appreciated the food landscape. You could get pupusas, you could get fried chicken, you could get shrimp, you could get crab legs. And of course, you can't forget about mamba sauce, which if only people from DC and the DMV know about, but mamba sauce is like the the home sauce of that particular area. So I, I started to kind of really think about the food landscape that I was in. I noticed that some of what I would have thought of as kind of like the traditional outlets for good food weren't necessarily there. And, you know, we're not going to get into a conversation about food deserts, though certainly that's where the premise behind the idea of food deserts kind of originates from, is that folks don't have access to grocery stores, yada, yada, yada. Well, this this community did have access to grocery stores, had access to a couple of grocery stores, carryouts. There were lots of places to get food, but it wasn't necessarily the type of food in all instances that was going to be, or that I saw nourishing the community, and especially the kinds of food that I saw nourishing the young people that I was working with, you know, really kind of paying attention to that environment, but then also recognizing, right, that there was like the market environment that was kind of created by capitalism, right, which was McDonald's and the corner stores and 7-Eleven. But then there was also the 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 grassroots food environment, right? And so I'm talking about walking to work in the morning, walking past four floor walk-ups with the windows open and you can smell people cooking pupusas. You can you can you know that there are people in the community who are preparing food to be sold, to be distributed, to be shared in a way that was very authentic, that was very kind of culturally appropriate, culturally relevant, and they were doing the work of feeding their community, right? And so there was a level of of the food environment that was created for us, right, which was not good for us. And then I also saw in the midst of that, like people, mostly women, like actively working to try to create a different food landscape for themselves and for their families and for the entire community. And so when I think about food justice and when I first started thinking about food justice and wanting to teach about it, it was really from the perspective of like, this should be about our empowerment as people, our empowerment as communities. Like how can we leverage food systems to create better accessibility to jobs? How can we leverage food systems to absolutely create better access to food? How can we create, how can we leverage food systems to create spaces where elders and and young people can come together, you know, and, and have that type of intergenerational exchange that I had taken for granted for much of the early part of my life. And so in that period, food justice really was that it was a way to create a more just environment for the folks who were living in communities that had been left behind by the federal government, that had been left behind by the municipal government. And so that was where it really started. And of course, since then, we can talk about this in a few minutes, I'm sure. My notion of justice has expanded or shifted, right? And it includes, like you mentioned, food sovereignty. It it, it includes um, food autonomy. And so I think that in my mind, I continue to, to push the limits of what's possible with food justice. And so I continue to look for, for other ways to describe what that vision is. Mm. 
It's beautiful. It seems like the juxtaposition of the urban food landscape where you were not providing for community with the the women who were cooking at 4 a.m. in the morning. And it sounds like the, the seeds of that sovereignty and the seeds of autonomy were already sort of being planted in you as you were developing this, this notion of food justice. I'm wondering if you can take us a little bit deeper and a little bit further. I know I visited um, some of your garden plots at, at Frontline Farming here in Denver, and you specifically cultivate traditional African-American foods. And you have a whole African foodways sort of plot. And so I'm really curious about how the legacy of farming in your family shaped the work that you do today. You mentioned that you had taken those intergenerational relationships for granted. And I'm wondering if you can share with us a little bit about your background. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for the opportunity. On both sides of my family, you know, my, my father's family is kind of like traditional Geechee. People moved from the coast, the islands of South Carolina to Charlotte, North Carolina. And they actually, that that side of the family actually moved into business. They became beauticians and barbers and construction workers and really, you know, moved into that more urban aspect of, of what life could offer for Black folks once they left the sharecropping life. And so they really used that opportunity. Uh, but my mother's family when my great-great-grandparents moved from Camden, South Carolina to, um, to Charlotte, North Carolina, my great-grandfather had been involved in food production. He had been growing on land for you know, many years prior to the move. And so when he got to North Carolina, I will shorten some of the story, he was able to purchase 100 acres of land through the efforts of a white benefactor who even went to the bank with him and, you know, vouched for him and probably even actually put up the $100 for the land that my grandfather ended up needing to pay back. And he bought it for a, a dollar an acre. He bought a hundred acres of prime real estate in North Carolina for a hundred dollars. And this would have been in the early 1930s because my grandmother who recently passed was about three or four years old, and she was born in 1927. And so that was the land that both my great-grandparents raised almost three generations of our family. Mm -hmm. And so on that land, they grew tobacco because everybody in North Carolina grows tobacco still, even to this day. If you have a small plot of land, you're growing tobacco. That was a main cash crop. But they grew tomatoes. They grew corn, they grew peppers, beans, watermelons, and all the things that people would anticipate that they would see um, on a farm. The key to the farm and the key for me is that it, it was they were not market farmers. Hmm. They were subsistence farmers. And so, you know, the thing that my mother said to me, speaking about like that knowledge transfer that really has been the thing that stuck with me and driven me in this work is that we were poor, but we didn't know it. You know, you take a sensitive young kid who is really paying attention to the things that are happening around him and he recognizes inequality, but he's not in a position to do anything about it. You give him a powerful message like we were poor, but we didn't know it. And it becomes kind of a North Star. So to me, that is our access to 
liberation. That is our access to freedom. That is our access to providing the things for ourselves and for our families that we need. They had cows, they had chickens. My great grandmother made almost all of their clothes. She churned butter. She, you know, my mother marvels at the fact that she could bake a cake in a, in a wood stove. Like how does she keep the temperature consistent in a wood stove to bake a cake? Mm. You know, so there are a lot of things, a lot of brilliance. But yeah, it blows your mind, right? There's right. a lot of brilliance that I recognize and I continue to recognize what kind of a part of my family's experience. They were there together, right? So they're my, and I still remember, I still remember on the hill, that's what they called it, Cooper Hill. You'd have my grandparents, great-grandparents' house it was yellow, kind of like right in the middle. And then just a little bit down the hill was the house that my grandmother shared with my mom and my uncle. And then a little bit further down the hill was the house of one of my great uncles. You know, and I think that there were, at the height of it, there were probably six families that lived on the hill, multiple children. And I have always had a very, you know, they had a spring on the land. I mean, all, all kinds of things. And so that's my vision, right? That's my vision of farming. I know for like for a lot of black folks, for a lot of a lot of people, you know, colonialism and enslavement has shaped their perception of what farming is and about what that life is like. And so I really feel fortunate to have had this other piece of the story tied into my family history to connect to, to kind of look at the land as something that, yes, it's true, it was leveraged. To, to put us into bondage and to keep us in bondage. Mm-hmm. Um, but for many Black families, even if it's not the case, it was all, the land was also a passageway out of those things. Yeah, and I could tell tons of stories, but the last one I'll say that's connected to Frontline is, you know, the fact that my grandfather would take food every Sunday to church and he would just give food away. And I didn't even realize this until after we had started Frontline and one of my cousins, like, I don't know if you knew this, but Grandpapa used to do the same thing every Sunday. We would give food away, you know, just to the community and the church parking lot. And so when I think about my history, I've really come to recognize that it's just me manifesting and perpetuating something that's a part of my lineage. And so it's deeply personal for me, the work that we do with Frontline. In the African foodways, we grow gourds. And of course, I wanted to grow gourds because they have all kinds of like secondary uses. You can make art, you can make musical instruments, you can make implements for the kitchen. And so I'm interested in multifunctional, multifaceted things. And um, I was there with my mother who was visiting from North Carolina. And she was like, what's that? And I was like, oh, these are gourds. Like, you know, and I got really excited. And I was telling her about the gourds. And I was saying the flowers grow differently and they're white instead of yellow. And she said, you know what? Your grandpapa used to grow gourds like this. And I, and you know, I was floored because there's no reason, right? There's no reason for me to love gourds that much, but just that notion that there is something kind of generational in the work that I'm doing and that I'm really doing something and cultivating things that my family has cultivated for a very long time has always been really meaningful to me. So Mm, I love that. In the September 2019 issue of The Atlantic, there was an article called The Great Land Robbery by Van R. Newquirk. And some of the statistics or some of the story uh, that he tells is that Black landowners in the South have lost 12 million acres of farmland over the past century, mostly from 1950 onward. 
focusing really on Mississippi, which totaled 2.2 million acres. They say that through a variety of means, sometimes legal, often coercive, in many cases legal and coercive, occasionally violent, farmland owned by Black people came to be in the hands of white people. It was aggregated into larger holdings and aggregated again, eventually attracting the interest of Wall Street. They say that while most of the Black land loss appears on its face to have been through legal mechanisms, the tax sale, the partition sale, and the foreclosure, it mainly stemmed from illegal pressures, including discrimination in federal and state programs, swindles by lawyers and speculators, unlawful denials of private loans, and even outright acts of violence and intimidation. And thinking about you know, the history of your family as like a a meta history of what many African-Americans were facing moving from sharecropping and other forms of means to their own sort of serenity and building community and culture. I I tend to hear the story again and again about land loss. Rather, it's here in the United States, but also globally. And I know that some of your research and some of your knowledge really spans sort of the local and the global. And I wanted to ask you, what is the intersection between global land development and redistribution and our local food system? I, I think that historically what we see is, you know, the convergence of the necessities of capitalism to turn things into like this globalized world market. And when I think about land theft is what it halted in terms of traditional indigenous ways of being and especially traditional indigenous ways of food production and how connected they are to preservation of resources. So the moment that you started to see land theft, whether it be in sub-Saharan Africa, here in the continental United States with different Native American groups, you saw, you started to see kind of environmental degradation start to happen immediately and you started to see the the consolidation of wealth right in the hands of in this case like mostly europeans and so a lot of the perception that we have about black people globally not just in the united states is rooted in the fact that we were victims of theft right and and the the things that we often still kind of consider to be deficits whether globally or here in the United States, when talking especially about Black people specifically, is are those those deficits are rooted in the fact that we were completely separated from access to any means that we would have had to provide for our own autonomy and our own sovereignty. You know, our poverty is enforced as a community of people globally. And I think that for me, that has really been one of the driving factors behind thinking about food and thinking about the necessity of food. It's like we have to produce food, but without the land, there's not really that opportunity. So I think that for me, food justice, food sovereignty, and land redistribution go hand in hand. And a big part of that is reconciling that theft, is reconciling that loss. And really, and like I said, it's really about the, about the access to resources that we lost um, along the way. Mm, that landed in a lot of different places in my body. I'm, I'm thinking a lot about theft globally. I'm thinking a lot about poverty being 
a program or reinforced by limiting folks' means of reproducing their own well-being, especially reproducing food. I love what you said about thinking about what land theft halted, like the lost opportunities and what was what was stopped progress that wasn't made because of these processes of theft. And it's a beautiful way of framing it is that something was halted. It's not just that something was stolen, but like there are whole realities that could have been right. that are not now. That's the beauty of kind of Afrofuturism. You know, when I think about Afrofuturism within relationship to food, often, I mean, I think that this, this food work around food, this work around land is the way that we are going to start to actualize some of those deeper and more intimate visions. Robin D.G. Kelly, who is a, who's a historian, and he has an essay uh, called The People in Me. And in that essay, he articulates what he believed his mother's vision to be of the future. You know, and I, I think mine is very much the same you know, open space, rolling hills, children having the opportunity to be in nature and to learn from nature in a way that's deeply connected, where we can grow and share food in community, where we can, you know, those of us who are interested in praising and worshiping in different ways where, you know, the world becomes our church again. You know, and most folks don't know the church that my family helped to, to start as well. Most Black churches started out as arbor churches, right? Like most Black churches were in, in the woods where mm-hmm. they could go to get away from the, the surveillance of the slave owner, of the overseer. And so our spirituality as Black people, even in the, the colonized New World context, is still deeply connected to nature. Right. You go, you go, if you go to Ghana, if you go to the Ivory Coast, if you go to Kenya, if you go to Uganda, right, where these folks are practicing Christians, but their culture is still deeply embedded and deeply rooted in the natural environment. So they pour libations, they honor their ancestors. And that's something that has perpetuated even through the Middle Passage and a lot of those really traumatic experiences that have halted us. I love that you begin to walk us into the future because that is one of my favorite segments of this podcast. Before we walk into the future and do the, the deeper dive, I'm remembering your naming of a white benefactor that supported your family's access to land in a real, real meaningful and significant way. And as you know, this podcast really centers reparations. And I'm curious about how reparations could begin to benefit the work that we're doing in food justice and where you see the role of reparation assess. Well, reparations is crucial to, to the whole story. I don't know why this word is in my head, but it's the bag. <laughs> if we can access reparations, then we're getting we're getting that bag that people are looking for, that wealth. And so I think that reparations are essential to, you know, the healing, if you want to talk about it, that we need to do within our communities, globally, locally. 
I feel, and one of the things that we started to do as Frontline, because we're also involved with Mile High Farmers, which is a predominantly white farming organization here on the, on the front range, although we're certainly diversifying, is that the past three winters when we've converged, we've had conversations around equity and reparations. And so we are trying to actively bring the conversation about reparations into some of those different circles where maybe it had not existed. And one of the things we're we're talking about a lot is that just because reparations is not a matter of simply about wealth transference, even though that is an aspect of it. All right. So we're challenging regular white folks who maybe think they don't have anything, right? To say like, but how, but what do you have, right? What are your privileges? And how can you at leverage those privileges to start to create some real opportunities for reparations, for POC, um, for indigenous people especially? So I see the role of reparationists, right, as broad, first of all. I think that there are lots of folks who have a role to play. I think that providing access to land, I think there are many rural communities and many small farmers 60s in their 70s who are ready to retire. And I think that we're at kind of an important juncture in history where we have the opportunity to see some of that transferal of land. So I think that that's a place that reparationists can play. I think that in philanthropy and those folks who are interested in philanthropic activities need to really start to listen to community right? Especially women, especially communities of color, especially non-binary and gender non-conforming communities, and listening to what it is that we say is necessary for our own liberation, right? In some cases, it's resources, right? In some cases, like you talked about loans, in some cases, like you may not have the resources to, to give, but you have the resources or you can be a resource to leverage opportunities for loans, right, for grants. And so I think that we need to think across the spectrum of what's possible when you think about like the role of reparationists, because I think that we unfortunately have been somewhat limited, right, in thinking about it as maybe only being a a transferal of land or a transferal of, of wealth, because not all people have benefited from the racist system in the same way, to the same degree. And so we need to open up opportunities for regular folks who don't think they have a lot to start to think more deeply about reparations and how they can engage in that work. So, and I mean, I, you know, when you talk about my great grandfather and the, the, I'm certain that the individual who, who helped him out, who was his benefactor was not a wealthy man by any stretch of the imagination. Right. But he saw an opportunity he saw a good person, right, who needed a little help to, to actualize his, his desires, to actualize his goals. And I think that that kind of recognition, and I don't think we need to move beyond the language of reparations. I'm not one of those folks. But I think the recognition that reparations is only helping your neighbor, right, that reparations is only creating community and building connection. I think that that's where we need to help folks get to. And then we need to help them see kind of like what ability it may, they may have to, to plug into the larger movement for reparations.
you did two really, well, you did lots of beautiful things. And I want to highlight a creating reparations as a space of deep relationality that it's, you just helped, you helped a good person. And the other thing that you did, which was beautiful, was that you deconstructed the idea of a reparationist from being someone who's particularly wealthy, really named the way that everyday people can make significant generational impacts with the little that they have. And so I just wanted to acknowledge you and thank you. It's, it goes into patriarchy, you know, it's like, what, am, what, what do I owe you in reparations? I think that, that that's where I'm interested in going, right? Because if there's an idea like reparations, guess what? There's a lot of things that need to be repaired. It's not just, <laughs> you know, it's not just racialized oppression, even though that is true. Right. But think about all the other things that racialized oppression disrupted in our communities and our families and all the other pain and and trauma that we have visited on one another. And so that has to be a part of the reparations and the repair as well. If that's not, then all the rest of it may it may not be as beneficial or as impactful as it could be. So in this segment, we are going to move into the liberated future. And we're going to really think strategically about how we got there. And so will you walk us through the landscape of an Afro future where the goals of land, sovereignty, and food justice have been met? What does this space look like? What does it smell like? What do you see? And what do you hear? I think it's a very cool exercise because it gives me the opportunity to reflect on what we have done. But I think that for me, as somebody who started doing this work really with a concern for young people and with youth, we are doing it. Like, it's not as if it's something that's out there. We are actively doing it. And so you come to Frontline, you come to Majestic View on a Wednesday when we got the whole crew, you know, we're going to have 25, almost all BIPOC, and women farmers in one space, eating together, working together. And to me, that it, that's it. You know, we're there. We just need to expand. We just need to, to scale out our vision and bring more people in. So a lot of those things that I said, you know, open land, open space that we have, that we own, right, that we're not surveilled and our bodies are not surveilled and we're not criminalized instantly for being in the wrong space. I envision spaces where we are honoring indigenous practices, really honoring those practices that we are recovering from from Africa. So I think it's, you know, the Afro future is a deeply spiritual future, probably in ways that many folks would not recognize as being spiritual because they would be land-based. I see women leaders, you know, I see women taking the lead in the organization of very much of society and culture, because that is one of the many things that women have historically done, you know, is the organizers of getting things done, making things happen, making sure that people have what they need. And so I think that the Afro future will be fully cognizant of that reality, that that future will be a future where all of us can be fully supported as leaders, as parents, if we choose to be that, as creative people. I see a future where we have established systems that 
are culturally appropriate for us, but are still efficient, right? I don't necessarily always get on board with the idea that every form of organization is is white supremacist. Because guess what? We were organizing ourselves before white supremacy. So we were doing something, you know, and so to really make sure that we understand that like making decisions and organizing things and structuring things is not the same thing as, as being oppressive. And we can have horizontal structures with systems that work. We got it we have to get the food to people, right? We need localized forms of food production, right? Which means we need to get back to your point about aggregation, we need to disaggregate so much what of so much as of what has been aggregated in the food system. We need yeah. to disaggregate land, right? Latinx farmers are the are the largest growing segment of farmers in the United States. They are some of the only people from what I can tell in Colorado who are actively moving to rural areas instead of trying to leave. You know, so we have real opportunities to simultaneously disaggregate land, create more opportunities for sovereignty and for autonomy for people and deal with the systems that we that we have in that we have at play. So I think systems of distribution, systems of access are going to be super important. Systems of, you know, where do we keep the food? Where do we aggregate the food? How do people get access to it once it's aggregated? So I kind of foresee many changes along those lines in terms of thinking about the system. And it's going to be, for me, it's going to be the folks who have previously been marginalized by this current conventional system who are going to move into the places of ownership and, and control and influence. I think we're going to need way, way more young people farming, right? Yes. So it's going to be a, it's going to be a very vibrant, very active landscape. And those of us who are elders are going to really need to be there to help the wisdom and the creativity of these farmers who are coming, who are coming after us. Thank you for that. This next part is kind of cognitively complex because we're positioned in the future and I'm interviewing you asking how we got there. So this is a a part of our conversation where I really want us to think about the strategies that it took to win. What was one of the biggest barriers that we had to overcome to get to this future? The biggest barrier that we had to overcome to get to the future, to get to this future is the entrenched racism and racist practices of liberal America. I think the folks who don't know that they're actively perpetuating racist structures also often, but oftentimes are the, for some reason, the words of Richard Nixon, (laughs) like the silent majority kind of are are in my mind, right? This this we need to overcome this uh, silent and very complacent segment of the population. And I think this is true globally, which just tacitly benefits from these oppressive structures. You know, we need to you talked about the role of reparationists. We need co-conspirators who are willing to do the work of dismantling the system from their positionality. I think the work that we do with Frontline is important in terms of like contacting people and really showing them, giving them a glimpse of the future. It's almost impossible to 
convince people that we need to change tracks if they think that they're just going to derail the train. So our probably biggest hurdle is trying to figure out how to build the outlines, the framework of the new system in the context of the old system. And so we're going to need to learn how to recognize what those opportunities are, what that DNA is, and we're going to have to learn how to recognize how to work with it. We're going to have to build systems while at the same time managing the crumbling of the, the, pre, of the existing system. The recognition of how dire the situation was from a health perspective, from a food perspective, forced movement and forced change. We were positioned in a place where we could push even harder. We were able to acquire resources that we were able to then redirect into the community in absolutely meaningful ways. And one of the things that came out of that, we need more people who want to farm. The, the BIPOC apprenticeship program at Frontline, we're in our second year. We have this year, we have 12 BIPOC apprentices. I think the youngest is 23. The oldest, you know, I think is a brother in his 50s. They're going to be with us from now until the end of October to go through the whole season. And one of the things that we're really doing and working on is that we're helping our apprentices build their stories, record their stories. They're, they're interviewing one another because we, we need to build a base of power. We need to build a base of power and influence. We need to have a sense of ourselves as a community of black and brown people, indigenous people who are, who, who are farmers. And then we need to, like organizations like Frontline, we then need to leverage what we have going on to create even more space and even more opportunity. So we have a land campaign happening right now for Frontline. That's not land that's only for us, right? That's land that we can then say, how can we support our apprentices? How can we leverage this space to, to scale up? So I feel through training farmers, through building alternative structures and alternative systems, and through really trying to engage and shift the perception of people in the dominant, in the dominant culture, about what it is, who we are, and what we're trying to do. I think that those are going to be some of the barriers that we're going to overcome that when we sit back in another 10 years, another 15 years, I don't think it's going to take that long that we'll be like, man, we did it. Like, you know, we have like on the front range in Denver, we have 150 strong black and brown growers collective. So I think that that's, that's the future. That's the vision. You wrapped so many beautiful things into that response. I heard I'm sitting with disaggregation. I'm sitting with that we are already in the future and that it's not so far away. I'm really sitting with the work that you're doing with Frontline. One of my questions was about the current projects in your world that are a source of wonder and that you would like to call us to act upon. But before we do that, we're going to close out the future portal and journey back to the present. And so for the last part of the interview, yeah, tell us more about your project. Tell us more about, you know, some of the last things you want to leave in the hearts and minds of the listeners today. 
Thank you again for the opportunity. Um, frontline farming is, is, it's many things, but I think, you know, when Fatima Ahmad and I, the, my co-founder and she's the executive director of Frontline, when we decided to start a nonprofit, it was in some cases against our own best judgment, um, kind of recognizing how fraught the world of nonprofits are and how a lot don't make money. You talked about Greenleaf Denver and, you know, really the access to resources being a, a key case for Greenleaf no longer being in existence, but we wanted to tell our own story. We were tired of people trading on our work, right? While we're building the programs and we're in the field, other people are taking credit for it. And then we wanted to decide how the resources were utilized, right? And so, you know, we went, now we went from a crew of five in December, January, 2018 to now a crew of 15 plus 12 apprentices. You know, we have Franklin Cruz, who's now resident storyteller. Those are our things. Like, you're not going to find a resident storyteller in very many organizations. We, we have a very, very strong organization. And I'm very proud of what we've been able to accomplish. And because we've been able to accomplish that, you know, just some of the things that we've done, um, we donate every year. We donate up to a third of our food to our Healing Foods program, which is other partner organizations like Spirit of the Sun, which is a group that's run by Shannon Francis, really working with indigenous youth here in the Denver area, Family Tree, Safe House Denver, Warren Village, right? And so we really focus that work on women and children in immigrant communities, indigenous communities, right? Because those are some of the folks who are hardest hit by the shifts and the shocks in the food system who've been marginalized by the food system tremendously. We do that work and I'm very proud of that work and extension of that work. Most, most people don't know. And this is something that I pe think people can, can figure out ways to actively support and get behind is that Colorado is historically an under-enrolled SNAP state. Franklin's other job responsibility is to help to organize SNAP outreach, right? So we have a bilingual team. We're trained in how to do the SNAP enrollment pro process and take people through the process in a way that's either English or bilingual, right? We provide that support. So we saw an issue with SNAP enrollment. So we created, we were able to create programming to actively address that issue and, and enroll people in SNAP. So that's something that I'm really happy and proud about. We, like I mentioned, the BIPOC apprenticeship program, you know, this year we actually had a nationwide search and we had 80 applications from around the country. And, you know, we have people here in Denver right now who are here to learn farming from us and to be a part of that future. So obviously tremendously proud of that and all the organizational work that, that, take, that it takes to make that happen, starting to get into schools again so that we can start to build up that future generation. Like I said, we actively have a land campaign now, raising money in hopes of, of acquiring land somewhere within about a 20, 20 minute drive of Denver um, so that we can consolidate our activities and then also look for opportunities to create space and opportunities for other BIPOC folks who are interested in, in community healing and culture and in agriculture. Anyway, we could talk about it forever. Yes. No, we, we truly Very could. Proud. And my eyes, I'm like, yes, frontline, get it.
how can people be called into acting on behalf of food justice and the work that you're doing with Frontline? I know you mentioned a land campaign. How do we tap into that? Frontline is not the only organization that does this. Mm -hmm. And I think that what Rakshi is really most important is that people find the Frontline, the Green Leaf, the Soul Fire Farm in their communities and that they engage in person, that they go and they get that sweat equity. If the organization like Frontline has a CSA for folks to engage with their BIPOC farming organizations, because we need that money at the beginning of the season to be able to invest, to be able to create jobs. And then it provides that platform for people to really start to understand what local food is, what seasonality is, what it means to cook from scratch with materials that maybe you're not the most familiar with culturally. So I think that that's a big piece of it. For Frontline, we regularly hold classes we have an entire herbalism series, which you, Asia, have taught in for the past several years that people can engage with, and they can engage with that on a sliding scale. So they can pay, they can pay for the class. You know, they can maybe come to the class and pay $5 or $1 or, or no money. And so that's another way to support us. Another way is really just by amplifying our messages for folks to get into our Instagram um, our Facebook feeds and to help to um, amplify the message of, of what it is that we're trying to accomplish, not just with the land campaign, but just with all the work that we're trying to do. There are monetary supportive ways. There are non-monetary supportive ways. But at the end of the day, what I would like to see, and this is this is in every context, is people actually, to the extent that we can, trying to go out, come out to our farms, come out to where it is that we're doing our work so that they can really get some appreciation for not only what it is we're doing, but how hard farming is. Yeah. And that's the other piece, right? It's actually hard work, you know? So to really, to really appreciate the work of food sovereignty and of food justice is to start to really appreciate again, the effort and the hard work that goes into stewarding the land. Now with Frontline, we, we conceptualize justice work as our policy work because justice is all about engagement with the system as it currently is, right? Because you're looking for institutional change. And so one of the biggest justice wins that we had in collaboration with many other organizations, but Frontline certainly to the leadership, is getting the Agriculture Workers' Bill of Rights passed in Colorado in last spring. Thank you so much for sharing with us, not just how we can engage with Frontline, but a model of engagement, which is being on the land, finding who our local people are, helping with CSA so that those farms have enough resources to operate. You shared so much today. And that last question, but in all the previous segments, I'm reeling from all the ideas that I'm, I'm harnessing from your generosity, your generosity of spirit, your generosity of knowledge, and your generosity of hard work. You have been really working in this food system, not only on the farm, not only educating, but also you're a member of the Denver Sustainable Food Policy Council. And so legally, the work that you and your organization have done has really pushed us into this beloved future that you articulated. And so I just wanted to honor you in this time. And I wanted to thank you so much 
for, for agreeing to, to share this interview with us. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. This interview with Damien Thompson, PhD of Frontline Farming, was conducted by Asia Dorsey and produced by Lottie Lieb Dula for reparationsforslavery.com. Reparative contributions to Frontline Farming are welcome, and you can visit their website at www.frontlinefarming.org. Thank you. You've been listening to Healing Black Futures, a podcast envisioning Black liberation and healing through economic justice, brought to you by reparationsforslavery.com. I'm your host, Asia Dorsey.